So our passage this morning is, you know, obviously one of the big ones when it comes to the Old Testament, but even the entire Bible. You know, maybe outside of the stories of of Adam and Eve and creation, the, the Ten Commandments certainly has broader kind of purchase in our cultural conscious, our sort of collective conscience. And these are still considered, you know, pretty good outline of some rules to live by, by the general public. And to illustrate this point, uh, this past March, the Desert News, which is the uh, major newspaper out of Salt Lake City, commissioned a nationally representative survey asking adults, regardless of their faith perspective, religious background, practice, anything like that, whether they were a believer or not, a practitioner or not, and then to ask them uh, to say, which of the Ten Commandments did they still consider to be important principles to live by? And they found that six of the Ten Commandments enjoyed more than 80% public support. The number one being, can you guess what the number one commandment people think we should still abide by this? Murder. Thou shalt not murder. That one makes the top of the list. And these numbers add up to more than 100%. I don't know how they did it. but uh, So 94% of people said that is a still a valid principle. 3% were not sure. And another 3% said that it was no longer a sort of a valid guideline or principle to live by. So I don't know what's wrong with 3% of your fellow adult Americans running around going, ah, murder, I mean, you know, take it or leave it. But what's not surprising is that the public support for the commandments, it decreases the more explicitly theological that those get. Um, you know, almost everyone thinks that not murdering is still relevant, relevant, and only 49%, though, think that it's important to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, which is, you know, actually still a pretty large number of people considering, you know, that most of us don't spend that much time hallowing, you know, the Sabbath day. But there's still this sense that it's, that it's important. It's less important, but still important. And so there's, you know, large agreement around what's called the, the so-called second table of the law. So if you divide the Ten Commandments into two tables, the first four have to do with our relationship with God, the last six um, having to do with our relationship with our fellow human beings. And so people are still, you know, largely supportive of the second table, the, the, the relationship between fellow human beings, those commandments. They see those as retaining their relevance. And, and there's less certainty regarding that first table, the first four commandments. But before we get back to the commandments and we kind of unpack, you know, what, what they might mean, their overarching significance for us, uh, if, if there is any, it's essential that, and the reason that in this narrative lectionary they included Exodus 19, is that oftentimes that gets sort of lopped off of our discussion of the Ten Commandments. It's like, you know, Moses goes to the mountain, he gets these tablets from on high, and he gives them to the people. And we neglect the narrative context that, that, that God has brought He has liberated this people and brought them to this mountain in order to reach this moment, to give them these laws. And so we either, you know, we either forget what leads up to Mount Sinai or or we get things reversed. You know, we think of Mount Sinai before we think of Exodus. We think of the law before we think of the gospel. We think of the rules before we think of salvation. You know, we think get right, get God. But Scripture over and over and over again, not just in the New Testament, but throughout Scripture, it affirms God's gracious character that we only get right by getting God, or rather by God getting us. And so God isn't some, you know, terrible taskmaster, some horrible killjoy. God is the God first and foremost who rescues, who delivers, who brings freedom. 
And then he gives these rules so that people will know what it's like after 400 years, what it's like to live as free people, which is something that we're still trying to learn. The great 20th century uh, Christian ethicist Paul Lehman said that the Ten Commandments are, are like a primer for God's people, learning to spell and spell out this word, freedom. So all of this takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai, and this is where God had first revealed himself to Moses. So this will be the sign for you that I sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve me on this mountain. And so right before his very eyes and our very eyes, God's promise is coming true. And thus begins this long education uh, of God's people of what it means to be free. And the people are going to spend a better part of a year at the foot of Mount Sinai. And uh, they're going to cover the next 59 chapters of the Bible here in this one spot. So this is important stuff. This education in freedom is of utmost importance. But in all this, the people of God can never forget the character of the God who is giving them this education. Because it doesn't just matter what they're being taught. It matters who is teaching this to them. He's the God who defeated the Egyptians and says, bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And that's one of the most beautiful images of who God is in the entire scripture. And there's a couple characteristics of eagles in the Bible. They're, they're caring and they're ferocious. The Bible talks about how a mother eagle cares for her young, how she protects them under her wings and teaches them to fly and rescues them lest they fall. God is Israel's loving protector and teacher. But God is also fierce. God fights for his people. He fights for them when they're oppressed. That's what God did to the Egyptians. And in the Ten Commandments, it says that God is a jealous God. And we might blush and say, well, you know, that's just reflective of a sort of a primitive mindset on behalf of the Hebrew peoples, and they hadn't yet advanced beyond the confines of their culture and its manifold, you know, warrior gods. But God's jealousy is nothing to be embarrassed about. Human jealousy is bad. It's envious, it's about our egos, ourselves, and human jealousy is it's anger that extinguishes love. You can't love someone when you're, when you're jealous. But divine jealousy is different. Divine jealousy is angry love that stays love. It is love fighting for love. It's love that won't give up on the beloved. It's the love of a parent who refuses to let their child go. It's the love of one who heard his people crying out in their slavery in Egypt and came and did something about it. So the setting for the giving of the Ten Commandments, the setting for this education in freedom is God's fierce love, his, his absolute total commitment to his people. God isn't dispassionate about this. God isn't providing the, you know, these, 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 a dry lecture on morality to his people. This is God's fatherly instruction to a people he loves with all, all of his being. So God says, I did this, and so now if you heed my voice and keep my commandments, you will be this. And this pattern here is grace, obedience, blessing, and it's a pattern we see again and again in Scripture. God chooses Abraham and says, go, and I'll bless you. 
And the blessing that God promises is, is that these people who were once slaves, chattel, property, nothing, will be his treasured possession. And what, what this means, this, this term in Hebrew, it means uh, like the king, you know, had this vast public treasury, but then there was the special possession part, the part that belonged to the king, belonged to the sovereign. And so we hear that and we, we skip over that. We go, that sort of sounds nice. But when you understand that God is saying this to a people who were nothing, who were slaves, who, who were, you know, their, their, their male children were ordered to be extinct, we can maybe begin to get an inkling of what it means to finally have someone tell you that you matter that much, that you are treasured, that you are loved, that you are somebody. And God says, you will be my, my treasured possession. You belong to me. I, I've chosen you. But the reason I've chosen you is for this specific purpose, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And, and these phrases are very closely related to one another, and they directly relate to what it means to be a part of God's people and a follower of Jesus today. So it's worth unpacking them. And these phrases, when they're put together, they kingdom of priests, holy nation, these, these phrases together, they capture some of the creative tension of what it is to belong to God, to be in, but not of the world. And so these words, kingdom and nation, they speak to the independence of God's people, a distinct community within the world. But in the same token, when we say priests and holy, it speaks to the, the servant role that God's people have amongst the nations. This is their missional raison d'etre, that God chooses and uses this people for his purposes. And God doesn't choose the people of Israel because they are choice. We'll see that time and again, that these people are supposed to be salt and light, become a stumbling block. But that this nation is holy means they're set apart for God's purposes, not just an ordinary people, but their presence amongst the nations is extraordinary. And history bears this out for the Jewish people, that they carry the torch of ethical monotheism and the worship of one God and the adherence to a strict moral code in the midst of polytheistic paganisms that are repeat with constant brutality and casual licentiousness. As a holy nation, they are weird, weird to their neighbors. And they're a living example to the rest of humankind that there's another way to live beyond the principles of power or pleasure. And as priests, they have this role amongst the nations. And you think of what priests did in ancient Israel. What they did was they worshiped and they taught. And so it was their job to serve in the temple and the tabernacle to make sure that the sacrifices were offered at the appropriate time and the festivals were celebrated at the appointed time. And so what they did in all this was, was, was they taught too. They taught the meaning of these rituals and these festivals. And they also taught the, the, the scriptures in their communities. They taught folks how to continue to live as free people. And so worship and instruction, that was the role of the priesthood in Israel, and that was the job of the nation of Israel in the midst of all the other nations, to mediate true worship and knowledge of God to the entire world. It was their missionary vocation of presence. Israel was chosen for the sake of the world, and in their obedience to God, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's that commitment God made to Abraham, continuing through the Red Sea here to the foot of Mount Sinai. And that still describes the relationship of the church to the world. We have a job to worship 
and to teach, to be salt and light, to be a city on a hill. Ronald Reagan said that about the United States, but he was, you know, taking that, stealing that from Jesus. That's the church's job. And just by the church being the church, and by Christians being Christians, we have the opportunity to be holy and priests. We get to mediate essential things about God to a watching world. That's a scary job. Because when we get that wrong, we can mediate and teach wrong and destructive things about God. We can discredit God to the world. But all the people agree. They hear this. They, 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 they hear the demands of this, but they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And I think about what does this mean for us as a congregation, you know, a kingdom of priests, a, a holy nation. And, you know, I think about, you know, as a leader, uh, I, I think about, you know, mission and vision and strategy. And, and honestly, a lot of this stuff can become sort of horrible, useless corporate speak. When you talk about mission, vision, strategy, values, if you've ever been a part of an organization, you've probably gone through this a hundred times and you realize it's sort of a, it's kind of just something to do a lot of times to make you feel like you're doing something. You know, it's a piece of paper, an exercise that gets tucked in a drawer and you never have to think about it again. Especially if you're in education, at some point you're going to come up with, you're going to spend some time doing this. And so when I think about this, I go, I don't want this to be a waste. But when I think about, okay, what, what, what is there about this that's, captures for me what it means for us to, to be a holy nation, kingdom of priests, blessed to be a blessing. And I would hope that at our very core, this means that because God is saying, Israel, you exist for the sake of the world, for my sake, for the sake of the world. And for me, specific to this congregation, I hope that it means for us, we're a church that cares just as much about the people who aren't here as we do the people who are here. And that we're willing to make some sacrifices based on that. You know, that we don't just exist for ourselves and to make our own membership happy. You know, that's not the question that we use when we're making decisions. How we can meet our own needs, but we ask, how can we make room for the folks who aren't here and bless people who will never, ever, ever walk through these doors? Because that's who God has called us to be. So that's why we do what we do. That's why we've gone to two services, why we partner with ACE, why we do loaves and fishes, why we've befriended a refugee family. That's why we support as many missionaries as we do. All right, so that's the prologue. That's Exodus 19. But now we get to the Ten Commandments themselves, which confront us in their beautiful simplicity. And they raise all sorts of questions that I, I'm not going to try to answer them all. I'm just going to begin to touch on them this morning. But the first question, maybe it's not intuitive, but I think that it's one that's interesting to look at is, why are they so negative? You know, why is it a bunch of thou shalt nots? Eight of ten are negative. And you could think, I mean, the Sabbath one is remember the Sabbath day, keep it homely, and then don't do any work. So you could basically say that's a, a negative one too, at least half. Eight and a half of the ten are thou shalt nots. And doesn't this just show, you know, that, that religion is this repressive force trying to tamp us down, tell us not to do things? How, how can rules for freedom be a list of things that you can't do? Because life for the Israelites had just been a long, you know, 400 years of basically not being able to do what they wanted to do. And so how can these restrictions entail freedom? And I love what one commentator says on this. He argues that the negative command is itself actually the most liberating because it leaves open every course of action except for one. 
So think about the Garden of Eden. God says, you can eat from any tree except one. Well, is that repressive or is that permissive? And so the commandments, they speak more to the great freedom that God grants us as creatures and not any desire on God's part to just weigh us down under the burdens of untold rules and regulations. But that being said, there's still this question of what is the ongoing significance for us of the Ten Commandments? You know, how are they relevant for us as followers of Jesus Christ today? If Christ says, I'm the end of the law, if the law is fulfilled in him, then how can we who have been liberated in him still follow these commandments? How are they still relevant to us? Are they? You know, a negative answer to this question, saying they're irrelevant, was offered very recently by a a prominent Atlanta megachurch pastor, this guy Andy Stanley, uh, who said in a recent article in Relevant Magazine, he said, why, why are Christians all worried about building monuments to the Ten Commandments? Now, I, this obviously has not been like an issue for the last 10 years, but you know, 10 years ago that was a big deal. Um, and he says, why? we shouldn't be worried about that because they don't actually apply to us anymore, which made me think, hmm. And actually, there's going to be a great podcast. Me and Michael J. Nelson will be uh, interviewing um, uh, this Old Testament professor from Emory, who I know, uh, uh, tackling Andy Stanley uh, and, and basically saying why we think he's not really right on this one. That's a kind way of putting it. I think he's got it all wrong. And, 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 but it is this, there's this live question, this ongoing question between the relationship of the law and the gospel in the life of faith. Right? It's not, you know, as a youth pastor, you talk to kids, you go, it's about a relationship. It's not about rules. And there's truth to that. There's truth to that. But this question, you know, what, what good is the law? Right? We know the song, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. War, okay, that was the song. It was war. Say it again. He says, say it again. <laughs> Who did that song, by the way? If we could look, Drew, if you could look that up on your phone, I would appreciate that. I know you don't bring it to church. You bring it to church? Oh, good, thank you. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry to call you up. But um, uh, even so, what good is the law? What, what, what is it good for? And it's not absolutely nothing. It's not. And this is where I want to introduce you to kind of this, this classical theological categories for the uses of the law. That There's three uses for the law. This is what it's good for. And, and, and the metaphors here are, it's useful as a curb, so kind of a, or we could think of it as like a, like a, a, a boundary, or a barrier, a restraint, a mirror, and a guide. So a curb, a mirror, and a guide, that's what it's good for. And so as a curb, the Ten Commandments, classically, they've been understood as, as they're useful for restraining wrongdoing, since they forbid the kind of things that even non-Christians, basically everyone can agree, are wrong. And think, yeah, if you break these rules, you're going to get punished for them. And I think that, that first use of the law as a curb, that's what we see in this survey data from the Desert News. Even people who have no belief go basically, yeah, you shouldn't murder someone, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't commit adultery. You know, even half of them say the Sabbath day should be kept. So there is this sort of, you know, we come from a, a, a Christian, you know, a Christianized culture, or one, a Christ-haunted culture. But, you know, still there's, there's this general sense of, of these are some pretty good rules to live by and sort of a, an expression of a kind of a universal moral law to which every person can adhere, you know, that these are somehow inscribed in every person's conscience or they're present in every culture. I don't know of any culture that says that murdering, you know, unjust killing is good. 
So it's useful as a curb, kind of some universal laws for human behavior. But the second use, and, and the second use of the law, the mirror, and this is the one most associated with Martin Luther. He gave us the second use of the law in a big way. Because he said that the, 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 the law, the, the Ten Commandments, they are perfectly reflective of God's character. And so when we, hold them so when we hold them up and we look at ourselves in the mirror of God's law, we can't help but sort of recoil in horror as we measure ourselves against God's perfect holiness. We see how far we have fallen short. And so it drives us to our knees in confession and repentance. We throw ourselves on the, on the mercy of God when we look at ourselves in, in the mirror. And classically in Lutheran worship, the, the Ten Commandments would be read as a preface to the confession of sin. Because you'd read the Ten Commandments and you'd go, yeah, wow, how, how are you doing on those? And you'd be like, not good, we need to confess. It drives us once again to see grace. But then there's the third use of the law. So we've got the curb, we've got the mirror, but the third one, and this is the most important one for us, is as a, a guide, a guide for grateful living. And it's in this way that the law still has significance, ongoing significance, positive significance for Christians. We obey the law not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude that just as God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, now through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has rescued us from our slavery to sin. Jesus himself, he affirmed the law when he summarized it. He said, this is the whole summary. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. First table. Love your neighbor as yourself. Second table. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. And so when we read the Ten Commandments, we should read them in that light, that they point us to Christ and they, they invite us into a way of living that is as expansive as his kingdom. Because honestly, rules are helpful. Rules are helpful. They provide some basic guidelines and structure. You know, to, to not have any rules, to be an antinomian, that's kind of a privileged thing, right? And in a world without rules then who sort of gets to say what you should do? It's people with power. It's people with money. It's people with position. And so, you know, when, when we think about what value are rules, they are incredibly valuable, especially, especially, especially for the powerless. Because when you don't know how to live as a free person, rules don't restrict or repress. They liberate. Ask Ask an alcoholic or anyone who has been through a recovery process. You know, what are the 12 steps? They are rules that you work over and over and over again. Would it be helpful to say to an addict, you know, you don't need the law, you just need the gospel, just grace. Just don't do it anymore. That's not helpful at all. You know, how do I get, how do I stay sober? Step one, step two, step three. And so the law is an expression of grace as a guide for how to live in freedom. And so when you're a recovering sinaholic, like all of us are in this room, then the Ten Commandments, they aren't a burden, they're a boon. You know, you work the steps, you work the commandments, and, and the, 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 the 12 steps themselves, they're just a, a, a transmogrified kind of version of Christian discipleship. And the original context that they came from was explicitly one of a, a Christian program of recovery. Think of the steps. Step one, admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable, right? That's the law as a mirror. I looked at my life and it was terrible. 
and I realized I, I had reached the end of myself. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Stop trying to save yourself. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Right? This is faith, belief, something beyond yourself. Steps four and five, making a fearless and searching moral inventory of yourself and admitting to your God and self and another person the exact nature of our wrongs. This is repentance. This is confession of sin. It goes on and on and on. And so when we believe in Jesus Christ and we understand that he fulfilled the law and he took its condemnation upon himself, then we can follow the law as free people. The law, no, the law doesn't have any power over us to condemn us, but by God's grace and the Spirit's power, it has power in us to free us. St. Augustine said that the law was given that grace might be sought. It's kind of the law's mirror. But grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. The law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. And one last thing to say before I wrap up on the third use of the law, that, that when we see the Ten Commandments as this expansive guide for grateful living, then we see it doesn't just you know, forbid things, but it also commends ways of living to us. In the Westminster Larger Catechism and its teaching on the Ten Commandments, there's this question and answer back and forth, and it says, you know, what sins are forbidden? by the, the, you know, X commandment or whatever. But then there's also this other question, this follow-up question that's so helpful. It says, what are the duties required by this? So, you know, there, there's what, what is forbidden by, you know, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. And it lists all these unjust ways of, of harming another person's life. But what are the duties required? And then it lists, you know, preserving and protecting and seeing, tending to the flourishing of your neighbor's life. It's this beautifully expansive view of the Ten Commandments as this guy, this guide to grateful living. And Luther, he, he captures this wonderfully in a small catechism on the Ten Commandments. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods. And then the question is, what is this? And he says, we are to fear, love, and trust God above all things. So love and trust God above all things. Against such things, there is no law. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.